We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. Uh, if you are in need of a Bible to follow along, the black books in the back of the pew in front of you are our Bibles, and there's an index at the front that will get you to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. We're currently looking at two chapters uh, over five weeks in the book of 2 Corinthians that deal with generosity, that deal with giving. The particular circumstances of this particular ministry or this particular gift is that Paul the Apostle is going to all of the churches that he's planted and taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And the reason is because the church in Jerusalem, uh, through a couple of different circumstances, has fallen on hard times. But it's important when we read these chapters to remember that the people of Corinth have probably never been to Jerusalem, probably never met the Christians represented here. Uh, and we also need to remember that this is the ancient world, so there's no wiring this money from bank account to bank account, right? We're talking about all of this money in a physical format being wrapped in a bag and carried thousands of miles, okay? We have to keep that in mind for what we're going to see this morning um, because it creates this big kind of thing that we actually face all the time today, right? All of you understand what I'm about to talk about because you've gotten emails from Nigerian royalty, right? There's this reality of how do you really know what's on the other side of the world? How do you really know if what you give, what you do, actually does what it's supposed to do? What's the difference between a scam and an opportunity? Okay, Just think of how big this would have been in Paul's day as Paul, who in this church is already to some people suspect, is going, yeah, I want you to all give me your money and I promise I'll take it all the way to Jerusalem and give it to those who are in need. Okay, And so what we find this morning are uh, are some principles that Paul lives by uh, to make sure that he does that above board, to make sure that his giving or uh, his um, administration of this gift is accountable, trustworthy. Okay. In fact, this is probably one of the more practical sections of this chapter, and it's very easy, I think, for us to read this and go, well, I don't have any plan of carrying thousands of dollars in, you know, drachmas and other Greek coinage, Roman coinage, uh, across thousands of miles, so this is irrelevant to me. Or I'm not actually I'm involved in some sort of official ministry. I'm not taking other people's donations, so this really has nothing to do with me. And I would challenge that on two fronts. Um, the first is because Paul is primarily talking to regular, average day, everyday Christians like yourselves. The statements that he's making here are not to those carrying the gift, but those who are contributing. And the truth is, we could all use some wisdom in our utilization of our generosity. Okay. So there's principles there. The second thing I would point out to you is we're going to see that the baseline reason Paul gives for why Christians should do things in, an, in a way that involves accountability, in a way that's above reproach, has everything to do with your everyday life, okay? And so I think it is relevant for us. 
But before we look at these principles, I want to do one last thing. Throughout this whole series on generosity, we have to keep in mind that primarily God doesn't want our money. That's not really what this is about. Okay. In fact, Paul has already told us that in verse 9 of chapter 8 when he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, yet th that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Okay, so the foundation of generosity in the Christian's life is not buying our ticket into heaven or even storing up rewards in heaven, but the fact that we have so tremendously received. That Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we, being poor, might become rich. If you forget that we are first recipients before we are givers, you will miss what we've called gospel generosity. So one reason he gives here specifically is that we should be generous because God has been so tremendously generous with us. Not only in our time of need, but in our time of rebellion, doing what we could not do ourselves to bring us into relationship with him. There is another principle that Paul doesn't talk about here, but he does in another place. In fact, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that one of the things Paul did was elevate the example of another church. He said, if you want to know how this works out practically, let me tell you about the churches in Macedonia. Now, the primary church that we're familiar with in the area of Macedonia in the ancient world was the church in Philippi. Okay? And so Paul actually writes another letter of the New Testament called Philippians to the church in Philippi and once again addresses their generosity, not about this not about this particular gift, but on another occasion. Because the church in Philippi didn't just want to support the Jews, they also wanted to support Paul's ministry. So they took up an offering for the Apostle Paul, and the letter to the Philippians is effectively a thank you letter for that gift. In Philippians chapter 4, we have another great chapter filled with um, gospel generosity, helping us to understand this. But what I want to draw your attention to is something he says particularly there. He says, I rejoice in your gift, not because of my need, which in and of itself is profound. Okay. When you turn on the television and there are people asking for your money, what is the primary reason given? Need. One of the baseline motivations that's used throughout the world, including in the church, just generally, one of the motivators we use is, we have so much, they have so little. Paul just takes that off the table. He says, this isn't about need. I know how to have little, I know how to have much, I can do all things th through Christ who strengthens me. He says, but I rejoice in your gift because in it you participate in my ministry and it abounds to your account. He rejoices in their gift because their giving is not just a donation, it's participation. Here's what I'm saying. Not all of us are going to be missionaries in third world countries. Not all of us are going to be gifted in such a way that we have some sort of uh, ministry with a capital M. But all of us can participate in what God is doing through our money. Okay. Which, means, which means that we have a second motivation for our generosity, which is the fact that we can actually make a significant difference in the world we live in with our money. Jesus puts it in a, in a really interesting way. He says, make friends with unrighteous mammon. 
Mammon is this, uh, this god in the ancient world, the money god. And Jesus just takes the term and he says, put it to work. Use it to do something profound. And if you read it in his context, he's talking about the fact that you can change the internal destiny of other people's lives with your wallet. Okay? So, that fact, that fact that we're invited into what God is doing, not just in the local church here in Seattle, but across the globe, what God is doing with all of the nations, with all the ethnicities, across all boundaries and borders, uh, we can participate. But as we'll see this morning, as we read in just a minute, we need to do that with wisdom. We need to do that with discretion. Not all giving is as wise as other giving. Okay, so with that being said, let's read together the rest, uh, the end of the chapter beginning in verse 16. But thanks be to God who put in the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker, worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about you to these men. Let's pray. Father, through Jesus, you gave us two parables about money, about opportunity, about resources and responsibility. One about the minas and one about the talents. And in each one, you communicate that you have given us all things in our life our abilities, our opportunities, our resources, not just to be, but to invest, to use to your glory. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see this morning that there's a way to do that that is right, and there's a way to do that that's not so right, that doesn't really live up to the reality of the God that we proclaim. I ask that by your spirit, Lord, you would reach into our lives by the gateway of our heart this morning and lay your finger on the places in our lives where these truths apply this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you didn't catch it, effectively what Paul says in this passage is, in order to obtain this gift, I'm sending to you three men. Okay, Titus is one of them. The other two remain unnamed. And he basically just explains why he's sending these three men. And the key of it 
we find in verse 20. He says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered to by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. He says, we're doing this in this way so that everybody will be able to see that we are not benefiting from this in any way, that this is not a scam, that there is no scandal. He wants to do this in a way that is above reproach. Okay? So one of the things he does is he's not even involved. He's not even going to touch the money himself. Okay? And then the second thing, and you can pull this together from the book of Acts, and a few other places where Paul talks about this gift for Jerusalem. The second thing is by from every church that makes a donation, taking a representative from that church with him. Okay? So each church will have an eyewitness of the entire transaction. Okay? But his goal here, he says, is that there would be blamelessness. That no one would be able to look on and go, yeah, but this is really just Paul lining his pockets. Now, what he does here, I think, is helpful to us because when he gives the reason in verse 21, once again, he says, we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Okay. What is he saying here? He's saying that in a sense, God cares what people think of you. Now, I say in a sense because there's a limitation there. Probably one of the greatest acts of generosity we find in the Bible has to do with a woman named Mary. She understands better than anyone, it appears, what Jesus means when he says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I will be crucified. And he's made such a tremendous impact on her life. Most likely she was a prostitute beforehand and Jesus has just received her in such a way, it's changed her life, she leaves that behind, and she brings this alabaster flask of perfume. Now, because of the words of Judas, we know that this is a year's wages worth, okay? This is no small bottle of perfume. I don't even know if we sell perfume at this value anymore, but just imagine a year's wages, and she just breaks it open, and she dumps it out on the feet of Jesus, and the disciples, led by Judas, are in an uproar, and they go, what a waste. We could have used that to fed so many people, and she just poured it out and used it all here. And Jesus says, no, you're misunderstanding this. You don't see what's going on. She's anointed my body for burial. She will be remembered for what she has done. Here's the point. People looking on at that go, what a waste. They can't understand what's going on here. That's often true of the Christian life. When Paul says here we should care what people think, he's not saying that our lives should be understandable. Okay. If anything, the New Testament communicates that the gospel makes such a difference in a human being, such a difference in a human being's life that it should make people scratch their heads. They should look at your life and go, that doesn't make any sense. And you go, well, let me explain the missing variable, which is Jesus Christ. Let me fill in the blank that makes sense of the equation of my life. Okay? There should be a hidden variable. There should be dark matter in the life of a Christian that makes sense of the mystery, of the, the way we live our lives. Okay? But what we find here is that Paul's not concerned about our lives being understandable. He just doesn't want it to be questionable. Okay? He doesn't want there to be anyone scratching their chin and going, I don't know about that. 
I wonder what's really going on. And let's be honest this morning. Those who take for themselves the name of Christ, who label themselves as ministers of this Jesus Christ of the New Testament, are not always far removed from scandal. In fact, most of us, and rightly so, are frustrated by the clear versions of people benefiting in tremendous ways by taking advantage of Christianity. Taking people's money and making a living off the gullible by promoting themselves as the primary conduit of God's gifts at the easy price of $9.95, right? The thing we need to remember is that Jesus cares about that too. So many times Jesus talks in the gospel about the coming end of the world. He talks about the fact that the things that are hidden will be revealed. He talks about the fact that there will be some who say, Lord, but we preached in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did miracles in your name. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. God cares about false representation. He does. He cares about these things. And so Paul cares about these things as well. And what he shows here is that we should care what people think because what people think of us has a direct correlation between uh, with what they think of Jesus. Now here's what's interesting about this. When he says, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man, he's appealing to the book of Proverbs. Paul is employing here wisdom. And so in Proverbs 3, 4, it talks about living a life uh, that is acceptable before God and man. And Paul draws that to the attention here. He says that's how we should live our lives. And this is not any small truth just found in Proverbs and here. In fact, we see Paul engage with this same idea twice in the book of Romans. Listen to the circumstances it involves here. In Romans chapter 12, he says this in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Okay, so when people mistreat you, we're to be aware that the world is watching. And we're to do not what comes natural, not what comes obvious to us, not what's just um, impulsive or reactionary, but instead, we're to run that through the filter of the gospel of Christ. And so we don't repay evil to those who have done evil to us because that's not what God has done for us. That's not what God has done for our evil. And so people's mistreatment of us becomes an opportunity to demonstrate, to make visible, to unveil, to reveal what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It should be something that everybody looks at and goes, I don't know why they did it, but I like it. That's not the only place he talks about this. A few chapters later in chapter 14, he's talking about food. He's talking about the fact that in the early church, there were Gentiles, non-Jewish people who came to Jesus apart from Judaism. And so therefore had no exposure to and weren't called to keep the kosher laws of the Old Testament. 
But there were also Jewish Christians who had grown up observing those laws, knew the Old Testament, and as Jews still kept them. And so that created problems over Christian dinner tables, places of conscience and difficulty and stumbling. On top of that issue, there was also um, food in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to other gods. Okay? And so he's talking about this issue and eating or not eating in these circumstances. Notice what he says here in chapter 14. Sorry, I've got to check my reference back in 2 Corinthians. Notice what he says in verse 18. Um, in fact, let's double back to verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Okay? Don't let what you regard as acceptable to eat be spoken of as condemnable. And then he says this. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Once again, quoting from Proverbs 3.4. He says, when you live in a way where you go, you know what, my own tastes and my own freedoms are not as important as their relationship with Jesus, not as important as their conscience. When we give up our freedoms because of love, he says it's not just acceptable to God, it's also approved by men. Let me draw for you, uh, draw for you one more reference. Let's look at just one more place, this time not in the words of Paul, but in the words of the Apostle Peter. So if you turn to Peter's letters, which are at the end of the New Testament, specifically to 1 Peter chapter 2. For context, throughout 1 Peter chapter, or all of 1 Peter, he's talking to those who are suffering because they are Christians. He's talking to those who are doing right and yet receiving wrong. And so in that context here, in chapter 2, look at verse 13. Uh, actually, let's look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We'll come back to that in a second, but notice verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors who sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Okay. So go back to what he says there in verse 12. He says that we should conduct ourselves among those who are not Christians in an honorable way. And he puts this in the context of the day of judgment. The Bible proclaims that one day Jesus will return, and the living and the dead, the Christian and the non 
all people will stand before him in judgment. That's what it means here by the day of visitation. And it says, live your life in such a way that they can't stand before Jesus and go, well, we didn't really think you were real because of the behavior of these people. Right? Do you see that that's what he's saying? He's saying, let your conduct be honorable in the sight of men so that they glorify God in the day of visitation. He's not saying here so that they become Christians when they go, oh, this Jesus, now I understand, but that they would have to go, I have to be honest. I have to be honest. You truly are King of kings and Lord of lords. Your message really was true, and my rejection of it was my rejection of it. Now I want to turn to one last place, and it's definitely the strongest. There is a handful of verses that scare me in the Bible. One of them is actually in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there's this character by the name of Samson, and by God's gracious power, he's enabled him to be a deliverer for Israel, who's currently under the thumb of the Philistines. But Samson's not really a great guy. He doesn't have a lot of character. His ministry, if you will, what God does for him is inherently tainted with selfishness, immaturity, and sin. And so it comes to a culmination when he finally, living with a woman who's a prostitute, he finally reveals what in him, his opinion is the secret of his power, that he's a Nazarite and therefore doesn't cut his hair. And so while he's sleeping, she shaves his head, and when he awakes, this is what it says, now Samson went out as he always had before, not knowing the spirit had left him. That's a terrifying verse to me. Samson walks out full of self-confidence, ready for his enemies, not knowing that he has been completely disarmed. But another one that scares me is in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is trying to show specifically the Jews that they need a savior. That the contrast in the world was not between the righteous Jews and the wicked Gentiles, but that all fell short of the glory of God and stand condemned. And so to do this, he's saying, Jews, you rightly applaud and approve the law of God, but do you keep it? He says, those of you who honor God, do you rob temples? Notice how related that is to the text we're talking about this. And then he quotes from the book of Isaiah 52. And he says, for it is written, through you the nations blaspheme. Because of you the nations blaspheme. What is he saying? He's saying, does your behavior allow for people to go, I knew that Jesus wasn't real. I knew that God wasn't true. That's the weight that we're talking about this morning. So these things matter. It's not merely that we need to do rightly with our money, that we need to be good with our business, but we need to be transparent in that doing of right. We need to be visibly good. We need to be honorable in the sight of all men. And like I said, when we draw out these whole things, this doesn't just touch my life because I administer some money that you guys give in your offering. It doesn't just touch Christian organizations and relief, although it's clearly important in those places. It touches your life. Okay. Because if you're a plumber and a Christian, then you're a plumber for the kingdom of God. And the work you do is a representation of Christianity. And you might try and shrug that off, but you know it's the case, because you find those thoughts in your own head. 
And we know that people take advantage of laborers. I spoke with a guy a few years ago that illustrated this to me pretty well. He was living in Salt Lake City, was not religious, but he was socially Mormon because it was good for business. You cannot tell me there aren't fishes on uh, plumber vehicles for the same reason or in the phone book next to their logos or these types of things, okay? But, but there really should be a significant correlation between your testimony and your lifestyle. There should be a significant correlation between the things you say you believe and your behavior, and effectively, the way the Bible labels this is that it should be honorable in the sight of all men. Not comprehensible, but honorable. Okay. So what does that look like, particularly here in the church in Corinth? We see a couple of things. Going back to 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. Look first at Titus, verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put in the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. And so in the example of Titus, we see somebody who is earnest, okay, very earnest even. But I want you to notice what he's earnest about. Paul doesn't say here that he's very earnest for the cause. Which is an important thing, right? We like to support people who are passionate. If somebody makes an appeal to you to put your money to use in what they're doing and they don't really seem to care about it, we have a hard time caring about it either. We recognize the fact that when somebody is passionate or filled with love for a cause, that they're going to be passionate in their spending. They're going to do things in particular ways. But that's not what he says here. He doesn't say he's earnest for the church in Jerusalem or earnest for the cause. He says he's earnest for you. I think this is a distinguishable earmark of those ministries that we should support, of those opportunities we should be involved in. You should pay attention and watch for those who care for you just as much as for your money. Paul was this way. Remember what I said about the church in Philippi? Paul says, the reason I rejoice in this gift is not because of what it does for me, but what it does for you. In fact, we've seen that in this chapter. Paul says, the reason I want you to give is not just because of the Jerusalem church, but because this is something that God has for you. I'm excited for what God's doing for you. He says, this is an amazing opportunity for you to be involved. He's passionate for them, and so he sends Titus, and he says, one of the reasons you can trust Titus is because he is on your side. He's interested in you. Okay. Notice the next person uh, mentioned in this, this triplet of people Paul is sending in verse 18. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for the preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace being ministered to by us. So the second one is unnamed, just the brother. The reason he's unnamed is because Titus is carrying this letter, the one we're now reading. And so he can actually, at this point in the letter, introduce him personally, publicly. There are many who suspect that we know who this is. But a su suspicion is really all it can be. But when we look at him, and he's labeled as uh, the one who is famous from all the churches for his preaching of the gospel, and when we consider the fact that Paul is writing this from Macedonia, 
then most people believe that this is Luke. Luke is in the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. In fact, doesn't that description make sense? The one who's famous for preaching the gospel? Okay. But we can't necessarily be sure. I do want you to notice two things. The first is that Paul gives references. He gives criteria for the trustworthiness of this brother. The second thing I want you to notice is what the criteria is not. Okay. He says this guy is trustworthy, but what he doesn't say is that he is a great businessman. Not that he's a leader of his own, you know, uh, Fortune 500. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things, but we have to watch out for assuming that somebody who has a successful business has a righteous business. Assuming that what we need most to have financial accountability is good business practices. What makes this man commendable is the broader reality of his ministry and its connection to not just a church in a city, but throughout at least the whole area of Macedonia, and maybe Paul is talking much broader when he says all the churches. Okay. The point is here, the point is here that this person has demonstrated their trustworthiness by the long haul. Okay. There's, uh, there's not just references, but there's a history. His history here is not just one of a local church you've never heard of, but a broad reputation. This man is well known. Not only that, but he was appointed by the church. Did you see that? Okay, verse 19. Not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us. Okay, that's accountability. That's responsibility. It means that the church took a vote and said, we want you to be the one who carries this money. We want you to go on our behalf. Later in the chapter, he actually refers to all these men, Titus, Luke, or this brother, and then the third anonymous brother, as apostles. But specifically, apostles of the churches. Appointed messengers on the church's behalf. Representatives of the church in Philippi and the church in Galatia. By the time Paul arrives in Jerusalem, there will be more than seven people representing these major areas of the country, carrying this gift together. But the point here is that they are accountable in that position. And their accountability is rooted in people who actually know them, who have actually witnessed their lives. Listen, there are so many opportunities and avenues for us to give as Christians. But the nature of our world has become so thinly spread that I think to some degree we're actually at a disadvantage over this first century reality we're reading about. Okay. The reason I say that is because our whole world stretches beyond the natural connections of relationship. Okay. And so we see something pop up on Facebook, take news for example, take an article, and we may not know where the article comes from. The only connection we have with that article is whoever posted it, whoever shared it. Sometimes it's from a newspaper that you know. Sometimes it's from a website you've never heard of. Okay? The fact that there's no natural accountability in that doesn't slow the process of those things spreading across the Internet, does it? The same is true with organizations. Okay? 
just because a video or an opportunity goes viral doesn't mean it's valid. Remember Coney 2012? Right? There's always these places where we have concerns, even in long-standing avenues. I've talked to many people who are working on the front lines of what's happening across nations in Africa, and they go, the amount of money that doesn't make it to where it needs to go in almost all of the arms that are carrying it is staggering. We have these things going on, but what Paul points to here is a truth that I think is vital. It's not that we need a process for vetting these organizations. It's relationship. Look, let's move a little further. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, Look at verse 22. With them we are sending our brother who we've often tested and found earnest in many matters. Okay, the third thing we see here through this third brother is that he had been often tested. Okay, he had had smaller responsibilities and held up. He had a long history of faithfulness, of diligence, of earnestness. He had a reputation once again. But I want you to notice deeper than that how interrelational these statements are. Okay. The churches in Macedonia have relationships with these people. Paul himself has tested them. Titus already has a relationship with the Corinthian church. A few years ago, an organization that I've always respected for taking these things seriously got in a little bit of trouble. This organization was so devoted to these principles, being above reproach, that their administrative costs weren't even part of the same donation. Okay? If you gave to their operation, it went straight to the field. And they had a second opportunity for people to give to their administrative costs back here at home. They were devoted to this. But there was a watchdog organization that, like other watchdog organizations, scores nonprofits, in this case Christian nonprofits, for how transparent and how good their money handling processes are. And they downgraded this organization. And this is a huge organization. It kind of shook up, uh, shook up the known world. It caught everybody off guard. I had many friends who had for years been sending their money through this organization. And the reasons given for the concern by this watchdog group, this was the first they'd ever heard of any of these things. It was the first. I knew churches who out of their general budget were supporting this organization. And as we gathered together and were talking about everything that was going on, I realized that none of them knew who to call. None of them had a close enough relationship that they could call the organization and go, what's going on? Tell us what's really happening. They had no relationship with who's on the front lines. Now, in contrast to that, when we see someone from our own church raised up and heading out on the mission field and we support them, there's a direct connection of relationship there. There's an ability for accountability. There's a possibility to hear and report back. In fact, when, uh, when things go sour or weird or at least appear strange, to me, in people I actually know, I can call them and go, hey, what's really going on? I think we have a tendency to neglect the power and the goodness of that. I think we have a tendency to miss out on that reality because we live in this global place, right, where the entire world is at our fingertips and you can actually give a loan to somebody in Zambia, right? 
I mean, it's amazing the things we can do. But because of that, like everything else in our lives, we're forgetting the value that comes with limitations imposed by real relationships. Let me give a really obvious example. When you see somebody who's asking for money on the street, there's always this wonder, well, what are they going to do with the money? Is it appropriate for me to help? Would my help actually be a hindrance because I'm just enabling them to maintain it? I will tell you the honest truth. The honest truth is very rarely is it a problem of, am I giving too much? It is almost always a problem of, am I giving too little? Right? The real reason why you don't know what will happen with that money, why you can't make a difference with just a $5 bill, is because it's just a blip on the radar of life. Because there's no overlap of relationship. If you take them out for a meal, if you get to know them over time, Right? It changes the entire formula of this. It's very rare that somebody in our own lives has a need and we go, I don't know, man, if I give them a $5 bill, they might just drink it. Why? Relationship. And even if they did, that doesn't end the giving. It just changes the method. Right? You give a loan to a sibling and they blow it at the casino and you don't go, oh, I'm never giving them money again. You go, okay, there's a bigger problem here. Let's deal with that. Relationship makes all the difference. But I want you to notice this morning that Paul is devoted to doing these things above board in a way that is visibly without suspicion. And this is why. Notice what he says in verse 21. We aim at what, uh, sorry, uh, what I actually want is in verse 19. Not only that, but we've been appointed by the churches to travel with us. We carry out this act of grace. It is ministered, being ministered by us. This is the point. For the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. The restrictions on how the gift is administered, the accountability that's presented, has everything to do with the purpose of the gift. Okay. He says there are two things he wants to see happen in this gift. One, he wants God to be glorified. And two, he wants their goodwill to be demonstrated. In other words, this should be something that's an act of worship of the goodness of God and also a demonstration of sacrificial love. Listen to what Paul is not saying. He's not saying we should have good money practices and good accountability because we need to prove to the world that we're better than they are. That's not in his mind at all. It's not Christians need to do the right thing because they are supposed to be the right people. It's because, as I said earlier, how we handle things reflects what we really believe, reflects the truth as we understand it, reflects what's in our hearts. Did you notice the words uh, of Peter? He said uh, that it shouldn't be, or I, I guess it was Paul in Romans 14, that our behavior shouldn't be a shadow that hides stuff. We should have nothing to hide. But the reason is not to show that we are trustworthy in and of itself. It's to show something, not just to not hide, but to demonstrate, to reveal, to open up. When Paul spends years of his life at great cost, organizing this gift and bringing it to the church in Jerusalem, it doesn't just not say scandal. 
It says love. It says glory. The reason we should care about accountability in our lives is because it's an opportunity to say, we honestly and truly believe this. And we want you to know and understand this impacted Paul's life so much when he got to Corinth. His normal practice of receiving support for his ministry, he set aside and he he said, they're not going to understand this. They're just going to see me as another person making a living with his clever thoughts. So he refused to take any money so that they would know that he was more interested in them than himself and that the gospel was different than the wisdom of man. The intention is what matters here, not just the practice. The intention is not merely, I don't want you to misunderstand, it's I want you to know. I want you to know who God is, that he's real, that Jesus really came that it's changed my life so much that I no longer need to chase money. That my hands that were clamped so tightly over what I own have been opened up and now freely give because I have been freely given to. And it's a demonstration of love for others. It says I want everyone to know that the only reason I'm doing this is on their behalf. Not just a living, not just a job. Not just another way, but a gift, freely given out of love. Because of that, our lives should be visibly, visibly accountable. Visibly above board. Without scandal. Without question. Not just because we need to be those types of people because the way the gospel works is through incarnation. The gospel of John opens up and says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Here is this great expression of who God really is, the word, the manifestation. And it says, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. When we ask the question, why did Jesus come? There's a bunch of answers, some of them more important than others, but one is that he made God manifest. John goes on and he says this, no one has seen God and lived, but he who's from the very heart of God, Jesus, has made him visible. We as Christians are called into that same ministry to demonstrate the character of God. If you go back and you read Proverbs chapter 3, that so that you will be honorable in the sight of men and God. It's the end of a sentence. Do you hear that? So that. Before that, it's they should be committed to mercy and truth. And I was struck by the fact that it was mercy and truth. Why mercy and truth? Why is it that that makes it honorable in the sight of all men? And so I looked for those two words across the Bible, and over a dozen times, do you know who they're used of? God himself. God is the God of mercy and truth. And so we're to live lives that are honorable, not so that we can be honored, but so that God can. Jesus put it very clearly. This is what he said. He said, let your light shine so before men that they see your good works and glorify God. And so we do our works out in the open with accountability so everyone can see. We do them in a way that's beyond scandal and is clear on priorities. That says, I'm not in this for the money. 
I'm not part of the rat race. God takes care of my needs. I do this out of love, and I do this to his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, you called us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And that's a good summary of what we've learned today, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't just be generous, we would be thoughtful in our generosity, Lord. We would want not just to invest our resources for the kingdom of God, but make the best investments we can. That we would follow not just opportunities uh, or, or big campaigns of raising money, Lord, but that we would follow relationship where there's trustworthiness and proven accountability, where there's uh, broad support. God, ultimately, whatever systems we set in place, they stand or fall with the people in the system. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us deep enough relationships that we could participate in your kingdom, not just here at home, but across the world, so that we would be able to love on Christians who are going through times harder than ourselves, those who are dealing with the consequences of natural disasters or pers persecution, and that we could truly and fully make a difference and that that difference would be made in a way that is visibly noticeable to the world and proclaims the uniqueness of the God we serve and the gospel itself that says we give because we were given to. We love because we were loved. And everything we do is a manifestation of God's goodness. Work these truths in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we respond